Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. In my original plan, I had hoped to tackle the entire chapter in one sermon and started prepping Monday and went, nope. So three sermons. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken from heaven. We've heard your voice, even as your word has been proclaimed We ask now that you would speak from heaven and we would hear your voice in the preaching of your word. Oh God, bless, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. There are no stupid questions, no dumb questions. Uh, Older I get, I think I actually agree with that. I know you might be surprised at that. And there's, I don't think there are dumb questions. I think there are dumb attitudes. And I think there are, there's poor timing. And there are great questions, questions that need to be asked, but perhaps not right then. Right? If the, the building's on fire, 
If the walls are burning down, the ceiling's about to fall in, I, I don't need you to come up to me and say, Michael, is it true that when our RNA is copying our DNA, that the errors that it picks up is largely responsible for aging? Yes, actually it is. And if we figure out how to copy the data more accurately, we'll slow down aging? I, I suspect so. The building is burning down. We have a different priority. Let's handle that instead. I suspect most of you have had a friend uh, like I did at one point in my uh, educational career. I had a friend who was uh, famous for asking questions. He, he was very inquisitive, a good man that you know, loved to learn, but he was famous for asking the question, the sentence after the teacher said it. So the teacher would say, hey, by the way, two plus two equals four. And he would raise his hand and say, I understand that, but does two plus two equal four? It was fantastic to watch teachers be like, what? Is he for real? Does he have a bad attitude? No, he doesn't have a bad attitude. Not at all. In fact, actually, he has a mind so inquisitive that he begins thinking all sorts of interesting questions. The problem is, is that the second he begins thinking, his ears shut down and he doesn't hear what's being said. Good questions. Bad timing. Well, uh, the passage we get to today is, I think, one of those great illustrations of uh, perhaps good questions, but definitely uh, one of them being asked with a really poor attitude and an implied one being asked with really poor timing. I mean, to the point where I suspect that this would have been one of those passages that was designed to be read with a chuckle. Uh, you know, some things you read, and as you read them, you can tell it's designed to kind of give you a little giggle at someone uh, else's experience and to enjoy just the kind of the moment in time. This is one of those that I, I suspect Matthew wrote with a twinkle in his eye. Like, yeah, you, you have to enjoy the humor of what's taking place. We've moved in Matthew's development of the ministry of Jesus, we've moved from his, his private ministry where he tried to keep things small. You remember at the early part of his ministry, when he, when he would heal somebody, he would say, no, don't tell anybody. Of course, they would always go out and tell people. Uh, he's now moving into the, the realm of his, uh, or the aspect of his ministry where he's comfortable with larger crowds. And in fact, actually, uh, previous couple of chapters here, we've seen him feed crowds of 5,000 and 4,000 of just the men. Now, for most of the people that would have been in these in these gatherings, this is probably the largest crowd they had ever seen in their entire life. I mean, this would be the equivalent of multiple towns emptying out to go gather together to have a conversation and to listen to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine if the entire town of York emptied out to go hear a preacher? That, that's effectively what's happened in these and in doing so, Jesus has done these most just spectacular uh, miracles along the way, feeding these massive crowds of humans so, so big that it's quite possible the vast majority of people had never seen a crowd that large. He, in, in between, walked on water, which was enough that it actually scared his disciples as to what his abilities actually were. Until we get to 16. In 16, it, it changes gears a little bit where we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the two kind of great political enemies uh, of Jesus, the religious leaders, again, reminding you in your kind of uh, learning of the Scriptures, your uh, Pharisees represented your conservatives. 
They were politically conservative. They were um, religiously conservative. They were theologically conservative. They were the ones that were so concerned with keeping the Old Testament law, they had built this gigantic infrastructure of what it meant to be obedient that was totally useless. Rather than focusing on the heart, they had focused on the hands and uh, were just adamant, adamant about keeping God's law. The Sadducees represented the political and and religious left, not the conservatives, but the raging liberals. They didn't believe in uh, anything supernatural. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in in miracles. They had basically kind of taken the Old Testament and neutered it of all the, the unique and special things, and it ended up with really what sounded like a surprisingly kind of modern view of life. These two groups would have been kind of at each other's throats the vast majority of the time. And so even in verse 1, it would have been the equivalent today of saying, hey, you know what? The leaders of the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention showed up to do business together because they agree on something. It would clue in any reader to be like, something is afoot. The two groups politically that never get along, that never agree, are here to do something together. Something is amiss. Something's wrong. We find out in the next clause, well, what are they here to do? Why are they in agreement? Why are the liberals and the conservatives together uh, trying to manufacture some situation? Well, they are here to test Jesus Kiddos, you'll find out in life, school is difficult because tests are challenging. As an adult, your tests are no less frequent. The problem is you don't know when they start, you don't know when they finish, and you have no idea what the grading scale is. Jesus has the same kind of moment that many adults have here where his enemies have come to examine him in an effort to find him lacking. Now, this test is not one that is good-spirited like your teachers give. This is one that is malicious. In fact, we might even say that it's, it's not designed to test him as much as it is to show his failure. It's designed to shame him. It's designed to embarrass him. It's designed to, to show forth his shortcomings. Problem for them is Jesus doesn't have any of those. <laughs> doesn't have shame yet. It's not on the cross. Hasn't taken my sin doesn't have shortcomings. He's perfect. He's um, totally sinless. And so what do they do is this kind of manufactured test, this, this hit job, this attempt to embarrass him and show his failings? Well, they say, Jesus, we, we need a sign, which inherently is, is not a great question. I mean, it, it does show a lack of faith in spectacular fashion, but the timing is really bad. He's just done his two greatest miracles to date. As kind of best guess, between a dozen loaves of bread, he's fed mm, better part of 50,000 people. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's, that's pretty shocking to be able to feed uh, both of these groups of people. You would have known it would have spread like wildfire through the countryside. Can you believe this, Jesus? Just a little bit of bread and he fed everybody. And again, remember, we're not talking just a, a kind of a small collection of people. We're talking about entire towns emptying out to, to come see him. 
We're talking about an entire region that has been fed by Christ. So the question from the Pharisees and Sadducees, you have to think at some point one of the disciples was behind Jesus going, really? Out of all the things you're going to ask, you're going to ask that? I mean, you could have tried to trap him with something in the scriptures. They try that and fail every other time. They could have tried to trap him with something politically. They try that. They fail every time. But really, this is the point that you're going to ask about a sign. Okay. Let's see how that goes for you. Jesus, being infinitely wise, responds with a saying that many of us have, you know, you grew up hearing or knowing, right? Read at night, sailors delight. Read in the morning, sailors take warning. Maybe you learned that when you were a kid. That's how I learned it. It was a way of just kind of a rough way of figuring out what the weather was going to be like. If when the sun sets, it's a red evening, odds are it's going to be lovely the next day. The clouds haven't set in. It's going to be gross and it'll be delightful. You wake up in the morning and that's when it's all gross and nasty outside. Guess what? Probably going to be a bad day. Likely to have storms. That's how you could have an understanding of the weather. That's what Jesus answers them with. Look, guys, you're able to, within decent amount of kind of clarity and understanding, figure out what the weather is. You're able to tell that. You can look outside, and if there's water falling from the sky, odds are pretty good it's raining. You can determine that. It's not that difficult. But the interesting thing is the application that he then gives, or the implication he then gives after that. Look, verse 3, you're able to interpret the appearance of the sky. You can read the weather. But the signs of the times, which are equally clear, you cannot determine. He's accusing them of being able to see the things right in front of their face, but not understand them. Some of you live with a beloved person that in the middle of February comes downstairs and is like, hey, is it cold outside? the first week of February. It's always cold outside. Yes, of course it's cold outside. Well, do I need a coat? It's February. Of course you need a coat. Or perhaps you have that beloved friend that, again, this is my favorite one, is where literally you see it's just, you know, coming down and like, is it raining? I, I don't know. Water falling from the sky? I'm not sure. I think it is. Funny enough. Jesus is implying to them that the ability to discern what's happening in the times in which they were living was as clear and as obvious as being able to distinguish if it's cold outside in February or if it's raining when the water is falling from the sky. But instead, they have a problem. They have a very big problem. You see, what's happening for them is that They're being intentionally obtuse. They're being intentionally blind. They're uh, like that person that has their fingers stuck in their ears and then is complaining that they can't hear anything. The person who hasn't cleaned their glasses in like 18 months and is complaining that they can't see anything. I would make a joke about not being able to taste anything, but I don't really think those are terribly funny at the moment, I guess. 
Instead, what these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees are doing is, is having the, the miracles of Jesus put directly in front of them and covering their eyes and saying, well, we need a sign. We need to, to see proof that you're uh, able to do miracles. And again, he, he literally just did that. Like that was the last thing he did. Guys, it was like right over there. Jesus responds in verse 4, the condemnation. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah here. He's referring to uh, his death and resurrection. That instead of going into the belly of a fish for a season, he would go into the belly of the grave for a season. But just as the fish didn't hold Jonah forever, the grave would not be strong enough to hold Jesus forever. And so he would be raised. Now the interesting thing is that this is the the kind of backdrop for the real interchange. This is not a surprising interaction that those that are are willfully rejecting the Word of God, either uh, by manufacturing man-made rules on top of it or by uh, disregarding the, the supernatural reality of God's Word, it's no surprise that these people would be rejecting Jesus. It's no surprise at all. It's... You know, conversations I get to have where people are like, well, yeah, I I don't believe in anything but what I can see with my senses. And so I think Christianity is silly. Not a surprise. It's nonsense, but it's not a surprise. Because the next question is, uh, does your mother love you? Tell me how you sense that one. Oh, I, I I don't know. I mean, she's taking care of me. Well, that's not necessarily the same. The government takes care of you and they don't love you a bit. A generation that he's dealing with here that is intentionally and willfully blinding themselves, plugging their ears, not listening to God's word. Now the happy news is that that's probably not a point that I need to press in terms of application for you because you're here. I mean, unless you're a child of the church that mom and dad made come, at which point you need to listen to this. Don't be in that category. Jesus tells us those people end up in destruction. Well, for most of us, though, the, the bigger reality is that we do need to be aware this is the world in which we live. You know, I know that uh, our culture has changed a lot over the last 30 years, and I know that every generation in, in human history, really, not every, but most generations, uh, the older you get, the more that you kind of misremember the good old days and how good they were. You know, you misremember and forget all of the really terrible parts, but you remember all the positive parts, and you're like, ah, oh, if it was only like the good old days. Like, the good old days, when you went to the dentist, you didn't have anesthesia. That is not the good old days. I'm sorry. That is just, it can in no way be the good old days. It can't be. But there is a sense in which we, we kind of misremember the human condition, and so it surprises us when we in, interact with moments in our culture where it shows that it hates Jesus and willfully, willfully ignores His Word. Yeah, it's been that way since the fall. I mean, if you actually go back, well, it was in Genesis 6, chapter 6, I think is verse 5. 
where the Lord explains his reason for giving the flood, and it was because uh, every inclination of the human heart was only evil continually. There's like three modifiers to say all, all, all. All the thoughts of a person all of the time were always predisposed against God. It should not surprise us to have a cultural moment that hates God. It's every cultural moment. In fact, actually, to believe otherwise is to set yourself up to fall in love with the culture. Culture always hates Jesus. Verse 5, we continue along with the story and we get to, uh, again, what is uh, just straight up comedy. I love it. This is, it just tickles me so much. Uh, Matthew notes, eh, well, they get in the boat and they go reach the other side uh, of the lake. And, oh, yep, mm, well, they forgot to bring bread. I don't have anything. Uh, Interestingly, the disciples apparently have been a bit overwhelmed with the size of Jesus' ministry. Marcus has specifically noted for us the first time he fed the 5,000. One of the reasons why Jesus fed the 5,000 was because the disciples hadn't eaten in at least a day, if not two. Because they had been so caught up in ministry, they just hadn't been able to eat. Here you see a group of men that are so, so overwhelmed with what Jesus is doing, they forget to eat at all. Uh, I, I love this. It's so human. It's so uh, encouraging. I, I tend to think of young moms with children who are you know, so busy raising babies that at some point it's like four in the afternoon, they haven't brushed their teeth, changed clothes, or eaten a meal all day. You know what? The disciples, they're relatable. Uh, they've done a similar thing here. They're on the boat, they've rowed across the lake, and they're like, oh, we don't have any food again. Right? And you can imagine them kind of possibly being like, man, why did you do this? It wasn't my job. I thought you were the one. Well, I thought you were the one. Again. Jesus, in the middle of the boat, continues the conversation that he's been having with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're gone, but now he begins to instruct and disciple his men, and they are just not on board for it. Not because they uh, aren't ready to listen, but because their minds are a million miles away. Whether they're thinking with their stomachs or they're hangry and need a Snickers, I don't know. But Jesus gives them this wise bit of advice in verse 6. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, leaven would have been a really big deal to them. For us, leaven is delicious, right? It's what makes our bread something other than crackers. And for those of us that enjoy bread, we enjoy leaven. Uh, We like things that are um, so mm, lovely to eat. Uh, For them, though, it had a very different marker as it it would have been part of the kind of kosher food laws that they were or weren't allowed to eat. Uh, In fact, it would probably rang a little bit more kind of close today if you know somebody that has severe food allergies. It would be like saying, um, watch and beware of the peanuts of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Right? For a family that has a strong peanut allergy that it, like, is fatal to a kid, man, they are like maniacal about looking for peanuts to make sure. Why? Because, well, it could kill a kid. Seriously, we've got to watch out for that. We, we can't just be silly about that. And they would have had a similar type of experience here. So when Jesus uh, says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, they just totally get hung up on the bread. 
And they start whispering amongst each other, and I love it. It's like, oh man, he's rebuking us now because we have no bread. Why didn't you bring the bread? I love it. And you get to see kind of our our first thing I want to look at just in terms of kind of a moment for us uh, to contemplate the first kind of failing of the disciples. They've literally just watched Jesus feed two towns with just a small, tiny little bit of food. And rather than listening to his word, they're preoccupied with the fact that they don't have food to eat. He's literally just demonstrated he can make food however he wants. I mean, this is the God that made it fall from the sky for years for his people. And interestingly, rather than listening to Jesus talk about the Pharisees and Sadducees, rather than listening to God's word, that they're preoccupied with his provision or lack thereof. And friends, I I think in this moment, the disciples are perhaps even more relatable than even prior. Uh, I think this is a heart attitude that many of us uh, really have a hard time with, where we get so preoccupied with the physical need in front of us that it dominates our thinking to the point that we stop listening to what he's saying. You realize that what he's addressing to them is going to be the thing that actually gets them killed later. Their relationship with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's going to be the thing that gets him killed, which he's on board for because he's going to die the perfect death, but it's also going to be the thing that gets them persecuted. It's part of why the church in Jerusalem struggles so badly for the next 50 years. What he's telling them is going to be exceedingly important, but interestingly, they're so preoccupied with the one light and momentary affliction in front of them that they can't hear anything else he's saying. And friends, I would lovingly say we are bad at this. Where whatever problem we have, it, it, it becomes the only problem we have. And we obsess on the one thing, and we obsess on the one thing at the expense of listening to the real thing. Rather than hearing his promises. Rather than reflecting on the fact that he can make bread anytime he wants to. Rather than reflecting on the fact that he's the Lord of creation and I have nothing to worry about, I obsess on the problem in front of me. That's why they get rebuked by Jesus. In verse 8, interestingly, the man who has just called this uh, Gentile lady, uh, who is my hero, uh, He's just called her of great faith. What does he then level at his disciples? (laughs) Oh, you of little faith. Guys, this uh, Gentile woman believed and it was accounted to her as great faith. And here you guys are having watched miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And what does he say? Look, do you think I won't take care of you? Do you think I won't take care of you? Why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you don't have bread? He can make more. 
speak it into existence if he wants to. He he has all the power that he needs to make more bread. You don't have to worry about the bread. He knows what he's doing. I do wonder, though, for us, how much that actually mirrors our life a little bit, though, doesn't it? We just get so obsessed on the fact that our physical, whatever problem it is, our physical provision is lacking. We get so preoccupied and consumed with that one little bit, and we forget Jesus takes care of his people. I mean, you realize that's like the primary point of the book of Psalms. It's promise after promise after promise after promise of how God cares for his people. Yet we forget. Oh, you little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you don't have bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember? Do you not see? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and all the leftovers? The seven loaves for the 4,000 and all the leftovers? And I, I think Jesus' response here is an exceedingly good one for us to contemplate. Not only does he rebuke them gently for being preoccupied with the physical problem in front of them, He then actually presents for them the solution, which is to go back and reflect on the good things that God has done. All Christians are to be historians. That's not actually up for negotiation. You're not, you're not, you are, you must be a historian. And you are to be a historian of your own life. To go back and reflect on all of the ways that God has been kind to you. All of the ways that he has preserved your life. All of the moments that you think about it, that if it had just been just a little bit different, well, I wouldn't have been here. And I wouldn't have known him. And it wouldn't have been the same. And how I've proved him or and or, how he's taken care of me time and time and time and time again. Now, friends, I think some of us have probably not spent quite enough time doing this. Contemplating our own lives and the Lord's kindness and faithfulness to us of how he has been so good to us in the past. And this is also part of the remedy for this ungrateful spirit that's preoccupied with our bellies is to reflect on the miracles that he's done in the past to care for us or just the faithful um, guiding our lives to this moment 11 how is it (laughs) that you fail to understand i'm not talking about bread talking about the pharisees and the sadducees i love it disciples not bread, not talking about bread, talking about false teachers. Verse 12, I love it, reads like Matthew's like, oh, then they got it. Then they understood. Then we figured it out. He wasn't telling us to be careful of peanuts. He wasn't telling us to watch out for our food allergy. He was telling us to watch out for false teaching. He was telling us to be careful and to be on guard against, and I love how they specify, they understand, it's the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And friends, if we're going to be faithful to this command, we have to at least be thoughtful about what were the Pharisees and the Sadducees' failings? 
Well, the Sadducees, perhaps more than any group that we would read in the Scriptures, represent postmodern sensibilities. They represent, in, in so many ways, kind of the cultural elite of our day. A group that would have loved, if they were existent today, would have loved the scientific method. They would have been the people that you would hear say things like, well, I only believe the science. Whatever that means. Right? Well, obviously Jesus can't be who he says he was. Miracles don't happen, except for all those miracles he did. Resurrections don't happen except for all those people that he raised from the dead. The Bible is not true. No, you just don't believe it. They represent a voice that I think sounds so close to kind of the cultural moment that we live in of, of saying, look, there is kind of no supernatural reality. It's, it's just what we experience and what we see. Friends, I would lovingly make application in that regard to say the danger that we have in our moment as Christians today is listening to the cultural elite of our land that try to lie to us or lie to our children to say that the supernatural is impossible. To say that only really smart people, all the really smart people, don't believe in miracles. To say that you have to give up your brain in order to be a Christian. Please never give up your brain to be a Christian. Use it harder and better than they ever have. Please. This is a lie that is constantly shared in our cultural moment, though, is to say that look, we have to kind of be these ignorant people who turn off our brains in order to believe what the Bible says. No, I am I, firmly convinced that the Lord of truth and the one who created logic is the one who has written this book in a way that I am designed to use my mind to the fullness of its capability. It doesn't matter how big your brain is. It's not bigger than this book. Don't believe me? Put it to the test. Use your brain to the best of your ability. I'll have a good time with you. That'll be fun. Secondly, though, I think, and this is perhaps maybe even a bit more dangerous for us, uh, acknowledging many of us represent the political conservatives, and certainly I would say most of us uh, represent cultural conservatives. We're not the ones that tend to be pushing for uh, the far edges of kind of uh, cultural change of new and acknowledging sort of kind of bizarre um, uh, cultural values. Uh, the danger for us would be more that we would align with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, their biggest, biggest, biggest failing was that they mixed their word with this word. They mixed their opinions with God's opinions. God's opinions are truth, reality, they're law. They are all reliable. Uh, Our opinions never are. But in the fact that they had confused those two things, they had run into a tremendous problem because they were then beginning to interact with the world and not able to distinguish anymore that which God had said from that which they had said. And friends, I'm going to gently and firmly say, this is a very big failing of the conservative right in the church. We do not do a brilliant job of explaining when God said 
versus when I like. We, we don't do a brilliant job of clarifying which one we're using. Uh, it's why sometimes the culture takes pot shots at us for things that we don't believe at all, but it's because we don't do a good job of clarifying those two things. Uh, and I would particularly make an, an, uh, a clear point here for parents. Parents, when you discipline your children, please, please help your children understand when they violate God's law and when they violate family rules. Because they're not the same thing. Right? When they violate God's law versus when they violate the etiquette of our culture. Right? It might not necessarily be a sin to violate etiquette. It is a sin to violate God's word. Teach them early so they can use their brain to make that distinction so that when they grow older, they're able to continue to make that distinction. Because what a, what a freedom in it is as an adult to be able to distinguish, you know, the things that are God's law and the things that are still important, but not specifically commanded by God. It, it gives a great freedom to be able to, to understand that. Well, why does all of that matter? Because interestingly here in these two kind of little paragraphs, we have a whole bunch of people that we would have considered to be the successful people of their era. Uh, The Sadducees were the cultural elite, the Pharisees were the educational elite, and the disciples were the Christian elite. They were raised by Jesus, and interestingly, none of them are preoccupied with Christ. Two of them are trying to disprove him, and one of them is preoccupied with their belly. None of them are captivated with the beauty of Jesus. I'm going to tell you right now that uh, there's nothing ever going to be added to the Bible. But if it were going to add and to include our story, I would not want to be the one included who's not captivated with Jesus. I said it last week, that's why the Canaanite woman is my hero. She's marvelous and her, her just devout belief in Christ Jesus. No posturing, no preserving her pride, no trying to look better than she is. She's just fascinated with Christ. May it be that this portion of the church of Christ, of God's people, that we would be captivated with Jesus. Now, interestingly, I think for a number of us, we've seen why we're not written in the passage. Perhaps we're too preoccupied with our bellies, our our provisions and our pleasures. Perhaps it's that we're too preoccupied with the world. Perhaps it's because we just refuse to believe that Jesus is what he says he is. Perhaps it's because we refuse to remember his promises. Perhaps it's because we refuse to remember how he's treated us in the past. There are a multitude of reasons in the text. And odds are very high that you're guilty of one of them. And the good news is, this is why we get to to meditate on Christ and why he is the all-beautiful Christ your shortcoming, the way in which you are failing him this very moment, the way in which you have failed him during this sermon, those are sins that are paid for on the cross. 
Those are sins that are forgiven, and interestingly, not just to cleanse you from that sin, but to cleanse you from the power of that sin, and even more so, and I want you to hear this, to cleanse you from the shame of that sin. So that when the Father looks at you, rather than seeing your shortcomings constantly, He sees the success of Christ Jesus He sees the righteousness of Christ Jesus, and even more so, and this is the thing that is so amazing to me, he delights in my good works as poor as they are, as limited as they are, and as weak as they are, he delights in them. Not because I'm a good man, but because Jesus is the good man, and he's saved me, and he's changing me, and he's doing the same for you. Friends, I would encourage us to be those people that are captivated with the beauty of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it does show us our own hearts and how we fail you, and we thank you that it shows us that you are the provider. Here, Jesus saying that he provides bread for the poor, we read that in Psalm 132. Interestingly, you've provided the bread of life. You have provided Christ Jesus for us, the spiritually poor. Thank you for that. Would we be filled with Jesus? For Christ's sake, amen.